Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Tuesday, December the 12th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the escalating naval efforts by the Yemeni resistance aimed at blocking the docking of ships at Israeli ports. Egypt and Mauritania are pursuing a new initiative to force and United Nations vote for a ceasefire over Gaza. The U.S. is sending massive weapons supplies to Tel Aviv amid the escalating war against Gaza. And more criticism is being leveled by, at Washington for the crisis in Palestine. In the second and third hours, we examine recent developments in Palestine through a panel discussion with experts. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. And, of course, uh, we'll continue our Um Kaltum uh, concert uh, film festival. This is a recording from 1962. <laughs> سيداتي وسادتي مع كوكب الشرق السيده ام كلثوم
Yes. 
I'm back. 
Welcome back, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, uh, December the 12th, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And that was uh, music uh, from the North African state of Egypt, Egyptian classical music from Um Kaltum and her orchestra, uh, recorded uh, in 1962. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the situation in the Bab el-Mandab Strait uh, off the coast of Yemen. The British Maritime Trade Operations Department said a fire broke out on board a ship uh, near the Bab el-Mandab Strait off the Yemeni coast. The administration stated on its website that the incident uh, took place uh, 15 miles west of the port of Mocha in Yemen and is currently under investigation. Additionally, it was reported that all crew members of the affected ship were safe. This statement coincided with the announcement made by the official spokesperson for the Yemeni Armed Forces, Brigadier General Yahya Sari, who posted on the X platform, quote, an important statement from the Yemeni Armed Forces in the coming hours, unquote. Now, in a related context, Director General of the Port of Iliad, uh, Gideon Gobert, confirmed, according uh, to Sputnik reports, which cited Israeli Channel 13, that Yemen's threats uh, of Israeli-bound ships had disrupted 80% to 85% of the port's profits, unquote. Moreover, the Israeli Army radio quoted Gobert as saying that the Yemeni threat to the Red Sea maritime routes, quote, led to the loss of the port by about 14,000 cars from the middle of last month until today, unquote. Channel 13 further reported uh, in a report uh, that, uh, quote, the volume of imports coming from the east to Israel is estimated at approximately 350 billion shekels, equivalent to $95 billion annually, unquote. This comes after Sanaa announced uh, that it will be it will prevent ships heading to Israeli ports, regardless of their nationality, from passing through the Arabian Sea and the Red Sea if they do not enter the Gaza Strip, which needs food and medicine. Now, earlier, uh, just uh, two days ago on Sunday, the Yemeni Armed Forces announced the introduction of a new actionable decision in support of Gaza, which will see the prohibition of all ships bound to the occupation entity, regardless of their nationality, from passing through the Arabian and Red Seas until food and medicine sufficient to the needs of the population enter the besieged strip. In a statement, Yemeni Armed Forces spokesperson Brigadier General Yahya Sari declared that this prohibition is effective immediately, noting that uh, Sana'a, out of its commitment to the safety of maritime navigation, warns all ships and companies against dealing with Israeli ports. The Yemeni Armed Forces emphasize their full commitment to the continuity of global trade, uh, the movement of global trade through the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea for all ships in all countries, except those ships associated with Israel or those that will transport goods to the occupation entity. It is worth noting that the spokesperson did not void the earlier equation, which constitutes that the Yemeni army will continue targeting Israeli ships in the Red Sea until the war on Gaza has ended. In other news, the United Nations General Assembly has announced 
that it will hold an emergency special session on today to discuss the critical situation in the Gaza Strip. This follows a formal request by Egypt and Mauritania invoking the UN Significant Resolution 377, known as Uniting for Peace. In a letter to the President of the General Assembly, Dennis Francis, the two countries in their respective capacities as chair of the Arab Group and Organization of Islamic Conference Group at the UN, said it was, quote, urgent that the General Assembly convene to address this crisis in accordance with Resolution 377, uniting for peace as rapidly as possible. The letter stated that in the absence of a ceasefire and in light of the ongoing grave breaches of international law, including humanitarian and human rights law and violations of the relevant United Nations resolutions, the situation in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem, particularly in the Gaza Strip, has continued to dramatically deteriorate. The request follows the veto on Friday by the United States that blocked a Security Council resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Resolution 377 empowers the General Assembly to act in any cases where the Security Council, because of a lack of unanimity among its five permanent members, fails to uphold its responsibility to maintain international security and peace. The letter stressed that Israel, the occupying power, persists in its military aggression and siege against the Palestinian civilian population, killing and wounding thousands more Palestinian children, women, and men. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Now, the question uh, becomes, would Israel have survived without the $130 billion in weapons and military assistance provided by the United States since the creation of the Zionist state in 1948. As the civilian death toll in Gaza continues to rise to unprecedented heights, reaching over 17,000 since October 7th, with more than 46,000 injured, one of the most distressing reports to come out of the war zone is the use of excessively heavy weaponry by Israel. The Hamas attack on October 7th, which killed 1,200 inside Israel has resulted in a disproportionate number of Palestinians killed so far, and those numbers are rising. In a report last month comparing Israeli bombings with U.S. attacks in Middle East conflicts, the New York Times pointed out that the aerial bombs used by American forces against the Islamic State in urban areas in Mosul, Iraq, and Raqqa, Syria, were 500-pound weapons. But in contrast, Israel's liberal use of very heavy, large weapons in dense urban areas included American-made 2,000-pound bombs that flattened buildings, houses, and apartment towers in Gaza while killing thousands of Palestinians. It's beyond anything that I've seen in my career. Mark Galasco, a former intelligence analyst at the Pentagon, was quoted as saying, which triggers two questions. Would Israel have survived without the $130 billion in weapons and military assistance provided by the United States since Israel's creation 75 years ago? And should Israel uh, be charged uh, with war crimes along with the United States, the primary arms supplier to the state of Israel? But both scenarios are not likely to happen. 
any such attempts in the Security Council, either against the U.S. or Israel, will be vetoed uh, by the Americans, as it happened last week on a resolution for a ceasefire in Gaza. The resolution suffered a U.S. veto, even though it had the support of 13 of the 15 members in the Security Council, with one abstention uh, by uh, the United Kingdom. According to a December 1st report in the Wall Street Journal, the U.S. last week provided Israel with additional 2,000-pound bombs for uh, the Gaza war. The U.S. has provided Israel with large bunker buster bombs, among tens of thousands of other weapons and artillery shells, to help dislodge Hamas from Gaza, U.S. officials were quoted as saying. The surge of arms, including roughly 15,000 bombs and 57,000 artillery shells, began shortly after the October 7th attack and has continued in recent days, the officials said. The U.S. hasn't previously disclosed the total number of weapons it sent to Israel, nor the transfer of 100 BLU 109s, 2,000-pound bunker buster bombs. After sending massive bombs, artillery shells, the U.S. also urged Israel to limit civilian casualties, a warning ignored uh, by Tel Aviv. According to Wikipedia, the Mark 84, or the Blue 117, is a 2,000-pound, 907-kilograms American general-purpose bomb. It is the largest of the Mark 80 series of weapons. Entering service during the Vietnam War, it became a commonly used U.S. heavy unguided bomb due to the amount of high explosive content packed inside to be dropped. Norman Solomon, executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy and national director of RootsAction.org, told the IPS military aid from the U.S. government has been essential for Israel to maintain itself as an expansionist country during the last several decades. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, of course, um, in order to uh, reach our website, first we want to let you know that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. All you need to do is go to our website, and that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this uh, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at Blog Talk Radio dot com forward slash pan african journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan african journal we'll take a break we'll be back with more of our program for this week
Welcome back, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, December 12th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. And, of course, the situation in Palestine has been the headline uh, at the Pan-African Newswire uh, for the last uh, two months or more. And uh, we're going to listen to a panel discussion from uh, the Electronic Intifada, uh, one of the primary sources on the situation in Palestine. This is a panel discussion uh, for day 66 of the siege on Gaza. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada live stream for Monday, December 11th, a day of global strike for Palestine. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. We're taking this episode to mourn, to grieve, and to celebrate the life of our dear friend, Dr. Rifat Alarir. Thank you all for joining us. Um, I know that people got to meet Rifat perhaps for the first time during our live streams over the past two months of this relentless slaughter in Gaza. And there are others who have known Rifat for decades and will be joined on this show today by many of his friends and students around the world who have had the exquisite joy of knowing and being known by Rifat. We'll also have some videos recorded by some of his former students in Gaza who sent them to us and who cannot join us live today because of the lack of internet connection as Israel continues to try and cut Gaza off from the world. For those who knew and loved Rafat and his work, we wanted to present today's episode as a virtual Azza, a condolence visit where people can come and express to Rafat's family and community how much he meant to them and to carry on his work and love for his people and this world. And we'll be able to send this episode to his family so they can accept these condolences. I kept thinking over the last four days that Rafat would want us to be angry at his death, but wouldn't want us to despair. He wouldn't have wanted Israel to steal our time that way. He told us, he told you, Ali, on one of our live streams that we haven't given in to barbarity and that we won't let them make us give in to despair and defeatism, we refuse. And that is what the enemy feared in Rifat and what it fears in every Palestinian, in all of us, the most. Rifat epitomized dignity and courage and bravery, everything that the enemy who stole his life will never have the privilege of experiencing. I miss him. I miss joking with him. I miss seeing that glint in his eye and his smile. And I'm angry. I'm angry for his wife and his kids and for the thousands of students who won't get to sit in a classroom with him and for the papers and the essays and the poems that he won't write. And yet I know and we know that the seeds he planted are growing into a vast forest all around the world, that he is immortal, he is with us, he is inside each expo marker and each blackboard and each kite that will ever fly over Gaza in the liberated Palestine. 
Ali, um, I want to turn it over to you for your opening remarks. Thanks, Nora. On our program last Thursday, I mentioned that we hadn't heard from Rifat and some of our other friends in Gaza for several days. I told you, as I reassured myself, that this was most likely due to the failing electricity and connectivity between Gaza and the world. We'd had these silences before, sometimes for days, and I felt sure that before long, Rifat's name would pop up in my notifications with his typical phrase, we are fine, or one of his notorious jokes. Instead, moments after we ended the live stream, I received a message from a mutual friend, Ali, Rifat is dead. Like everyone who heard these words, I refused to believe them, and part of me still doesn't. I'm still somehow waiting for a response to my last message, Rifat, any news? What we know that is that on Wednesday, Rifat was at the home of his sister in the El Sidra neighborhood of Gaza City. At about 6 p.m., a missile was fired at the building, killing Rifat, his brother Salah, and Salah's son Muhammad, and Rifat's sister Asma, and three of her children, Ala, Yahya, and Muhammad. The airstrike surgically targeted the apartment on the second floor and not the entire building, indicating the apartment was the target according to the human rights group Euromed. Rifat was 44 years old. A close friend of Rifat told Euromed that days before he was murdered, Rifat had received an anonymous call from someone who identified himself as an Israeli officer and threatened Rifat that they knew precisely which school he was sheltering in and that advancing Israeli forces would soon reach his location. That call prompted Rifat to move to his sister's apartment, thinking it was less conspicuous than the overcrowded school. I'm certain, too, that Rifat left the school because he did not want to endanger other people by being there. Yesterday, I was able to reach Rifat's wife, Nuseiba, on the phone at a shelter in Gaza to convey our condolences to her and their children, Shayma, Omar, Ahmed, Lina, and Amal. I told her how much Rifat meant to us and asked if she had seen any of the many tributes to Rifat. Did she know that people around the world are raising Rifat's picture and reading and translating his words? We don't know anything, she said. We have no internet, no connection, just the telephone. She said Rifat used to travel long distances to try to find internet so he could connect with the world and continue his work. So part of the reason, as Nora said, that we pay tribute to Rifat today is so that his family will one day soon, in better days, be able to see for themselves how much Rifat meant to the world. Those of you who've watched Rifat's appearances on these live streams and have read his articles for the Electronic Intifada in the last two months know that he and his family had already been displaced several times after Israel bombed their home in late October. Despite having to care for his own family, Rifat never stopped helping others, carrying water and doing other tasks in the shelters. He never complained about discomfort despite the appalling and dangerous conditions, the most appalling conditions humans can face. Anytime I asked him how he was, he would eventually text back, we are fine. Over these last two horrifying months, Rifat comforted me much more than I could comfort him, and I know that's true for many of us. I treasure the memories 
of the time I spent with Rifat in person in Washington, Philadelphia, Chicago, and California when he came to the United States in 2014 with Yusuf al-Jamal and Rawan Yahi to speak about Gaza Writes Back, a collection of short stories by young writers edited by Rifat and published by Just World Books. One Cold Night in Chicago became a legend. The night Rifat tasted deep dish pizza at Giordano's in Hyde Park near the University of Chicago. That night is still etched in my mind, heart, and stomach, Rifat wrote to me on October 31st. Rifat spent his last few days walking the streets of his beloved Gaza City alongside his friend Asim and Nabih, who has known Rifat since childhood. Asim, who works for the Gaza municipality, said Rifat tried to help anyone he could, directing those looking for a place to go towards neighborhoods where he thought they could find a little more safety. And while doing all this, Rifat continued to write, continued to support his students, and continued to do his life's work. Asim said of Rifat, he could have lived and worked anywhere in the world and lived the best life, but he refused. Indeed, after his studies in Britain and Malaysia, Rifat insisted on returning to Gaza and building a future there, not just for himself, but for his country. Rifat was the proud son of a laborer in Gaza City's Shuja'iya district and the professor of English at IUG, the Islamic University of Gaza. He was a co-founder of We Are Not Numbers, a project launched in Gaza after Israel's 2014 attack to mentor and support young writers in the besieged territory to tell their stories to the world. It is through We Are Not Numbers and Rifat's work that the Electronic Intifada has been introduced to many of its finest writers in and from Gaza, some of whom you will meet today. Like so many Palestinians, Rifat's earliest memories were marred by Israeli violence. In his chapter in the recent book, Light in Gaza, published by Haymarket Books, Rifat writes about how both his father and mother were nearly killed on separate occasions by Israeli bullets and shells. As a child, he himself was shot by Israeli soldiers with rubber-coated steel bullets, and on one occasion, an Israeli soldier threw a rock at him from the roof of a building, injuring him in the head. Even before this genocide, Rifat and Nuseiba had, between them, lost dozens of relatives to Israel's decades of savagery. In 2014, Israel bombed Nuseiba's sister's home, killing her sister and husband, and several of her sister's children. This horrifying toll, Rifat wrote in a May 2021 op-ed for the New York Times, made them a perfectly average Palestinian couple. Rifat's first piece for the Electronic Intifada in 2014 told the story of his martyred brother Muhammad, or Hamada, who is beloved by thousands of children in Gaza for his character Karkur, a mischievous chicken, on the TV program Tomorrow's Pioneers. Rifat's weapon was the pen and sometimes the expo marker. In 1997, as an undergraduate, he chose to major in English literature. He explains in Light in Gaza, I wanted to do more with my English skills and my experience being born and raised under Israeli occupation. I remember when I first heard the question, 
how many more Palestinians should be massacred for the world to care about our lives? I thought naively that repeating the question would change people, but Israel kept killing us and Israel kept destroying our lives. But Rifat was never discouraged, only more determined to use language to change minds and change the world. He learned the power of stories to comfort and move people in the most visceral way during Operation Cast Lead, Israel's barbaric bombardment of Gaza in December 2008 and January 2009. Rifat writes, I remember during the onslaught spending 23 days telling my little kids, Shayma, Omar, and Ahmed, many stories to distract them. Some were stories my mother told me as a child or variations on her stories featuring my children as the heroes and saviors every now and then. Even though bombs and missiles could, ne- could be heard in the background, my children were transfixed, listening to my stories like never before. Rifat adds, during the 2008-2009 attacks on Gaza, the more bombs Israel detonated, the more stories I told. Telling stories was my way of resisting. It was all I could do. And it was then that I decided that if I lived, I would dedicate much of my life to telling the stories of Palestine, empowering Palestinian narratives, and nurturing younger voices. And that is how Rifat spent his life to the very last day inside and outside the classroom. I do not want even to dignify with a response the vicious character assassination against Rifat that Zionists have engaged in, both to incite his murder beforehand and to celebrate it in the most depraved way afterwards. I will say that those who incited against him have his blood on their hands. But I do want to affirm here that despite the savagery Israel inflicted on his own family and on his people since his earliest days, Rifat always taught that we should see the humanity in everyone, but first and foremost in those who are demonized, marginalized, and despised. As we will hear today, Rifat loved to teach Shakespeare, not merely in appreciation of Elizabethan verse, but as a tool for his students to understand the world they live in and challenge its orthodoxies. Rifat writes, Perhaps the most emotional moment in my six-year teaching career in IUG's English department was when I asked my students which character they identified with more, Othello with his Arab origins or Shylock the Jew. Most students felt they were closer to Shylock and more sympathetic to him than Othello. Only then did I realize that I had managed to help my students grow and shatter the prejudices they had grown up with because of the occupation and the siege. Everyone who knows Rifat knows that he loved his students. On November the 2nd, just a few days after his house was bombed, Rifat wrote to me how sad he felt that the thousands of books he had collected over 30 years had been destroyed. The books can be replaced, Rifat. You cannot, I responded in an effort to console him. He replied, All those pieces you publish for my students keep me going. And when Rifat's house, family's house in Shuja'iyah was destroyed by Israel in 2014, he walked through the rubble with his friend Asim. Asim remembers that Rifat picked up the burned and charred papers 
with the poems and stories written by his students as if he had found a valuable treasure. Rifat is now among at least 17,700 martyrs in Israel's genocide. His story is just one among millions, and no one knew that better than Rifat. One day before he was murdered by Israel, Rifat told Atim, if God lets me survive this war, I want to devote the rest of my life to telling the stories of the people here. Rifat won't be able to do that, so the task falls to us. If I must die, let it bring hope, let it be a tale. Rifat is now the fourth contributor to the Electronic Intifada, known to have been murdered by Israel since October 7th. Before him were Hud al-Susi, Ra'ad Qaddura, and Muhammad Hammo. All three were Rifat's students or mentees. Rifat's murder is part of Israel's systematic extermination of the Palestinian intelligentsia in Gaza, including prominent doctors, researchers, and dozens of journalists. Just days before killing Rifat, Israel assassinated Dr. Sufyan Tayeh, a prominent scientist and the president of IUG. The poet and activist Ahmad Aburtema, a regular contributor to the Electronic Intifada, survived an Israeli assassination attempt in October that killed his 13-year-old son Abdullah and several other members of his family. In Light in Gaza, Rifat writes, the wounds Israel inflicted in the hearts of Palestinians are not irreparable. We have no choice but to recover, stand up again, and continue the struggle. Submitting to the occupation is a betrayal of humanity and to all the struggles around the world. Rifat embodied everything Israel hates and seeks to destroy. Knowledge, compassion, empathy, selflessness, and the determination to resist its savagery and tyranny and seek liberation no matter what the price. That is why Israel killed him. And that is why, through all of us here, Rifat and his mission will continue to live. Thank you so much, Ali. And um, before we go to our first guest, we wanted to um, show this very short reading and animation someone did on Twitter of Rifat's poem, If I Must Die, that we thought was beautiful. Let's go to that. I must die. You must live. To tell my story. To sell my things. To buy a piece of cloth and some string. Make it white with a long tail. So that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze, and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, sees the kite, my kite you made, flying up above, and thinks for a moment an angel is there, bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope, let it be a tale. And uh, since the news of Rifat's murder, people have been commemorating and grieving him around the world. And that poem of his has been translated now uh, into at least 260 different languages. It's a way that, that people all over the world are keeping his words alive and universal and immortal. Uh, we wanted to show some of those translations, again, more than 260 
the thread around social media has just been going and going and going, and it is just beautiful and a testament to how poignant and uh, relevant and, and yes, universal um, and immortal Rafat's words are and, and will continue to be. So um, we encourage you to go uh, mostly on Twitter, I think, but I'm sure it's on other platforms as well. And, and just, um, you know, look at these incredible translations. It's just kind of over, overwhelming for sure. Um, we wanted to bring in our first guest. Uh, we're joined by Yusuf Al-Jamal. Yusuf is a Palestinian writer and close friend of Rifat, who is also uh, his student. Um, Yusuf, it's it's really good to have you. Um, it's uh, it's it's unbearable to be talking about Rifat in the past tense. Um, thanks for being with us today. Uh, thank you for making the uh, memory of Rifat alive. I will never talk about Rifat in the past tense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Rifat is uh, immortal. Um, I felt so sad when I knew that uh, he's stuck under the rubble. But also, I thought maybe he will rise from under the rubble just like the phoenix the uh, famous bird that lived in Arabia and that was taken by the Gaza municipality as its symbol, just um, rising from um, ashes. Uh, this is how we have known Rifat, uh, very energetic, uh, full of life, full of jokes. Um, I have known him, him since uh, 2007. This is the year he returned back to Gaza and started teaching after obtaining his uh, master's degree in comparative literature at uh, UCL. And um, that was my first year uh, in the English department. And, uh, you know, Rifat was my teacher uh, at the time, and he, he continues to be my guide forever. Um, he um, taught me English literature and translation. I took co two courses with him. And he was uh, very mean with grades, but, he, you know, he was very tough. But if you earn a grade with Rifat, then it's well uh, deserved. Um, I learned things I, I never learned elsewhere in his class. We studied about you know politics, literature, language, uh, philosophy, history, um, cinema. He, he was an encyclopedia in many different ways. Um, then our friendship continued, and I'm not an exception to this. Uh, there are many um, students he taught who later became his close friends. Uh, he would invite us, you know, outside the classroom. Uh, he would always challenge us and give us homework just to, to make us think critically. Rifat was universal in, in his classroom. He uh, taught American, English, African, um, Irish literature, um, and that's why he, he was also universal um, in his passing. Uh, there are a lot of people uh, remembering Rifat now and translating his, his poem. Um, I enjoyed, you know, uh, also uh, helping him train young people in Gaza, like providing logistics and uh, organizing <clears throat> workshops on uh, poetry, creative 
writing, uh, literature, feature writing. Uh, he encouraged me to write too. Um, and I wrote my first article for the Electronic Intifada, I think in 2012, uh, the killing of my, my brother and why I have two brothers named uh, Omar. And I remember how Rifat was so happy that when uh, the article was published, he shared it on social media and he was always like praising me and encouraging me to, to, to write uh, more. Then he suggested that I turn this um, feature into a short story, which I did, and then he published this uh, story in Gaza Rights Back. We traveled the United States in 2014, Rawan and uh, Rifat and I, talking about uh, Gaza Rights Back and the power of fiction. And Rifat always believed that fiction is universal and it's uh, timeless. Like it would, it will be read a hundred years later, as if it's written now. Um, that's why he, he also encouraged his students to write uh, literature, and he believed in, in the power of literature. Uh, he himself was a poet, as you know. He published uh, "If I Must Die." He published this uh, poem actually in 2011, and he only pinned his uh, poem to his timeline in November. Maybe he felt like. Uh, uh, his killing is, is uh, uh, a high possibility uh, because of Israel's genocide. Uh, he also wrote another poem um, titled I Am You. So this is, you know, Rifat was a humanist in many different ways. Uh, he even tried to speak to the psyche of his murderers, Israeli soldiers, telling them I am you. Um, and again, I... I I feel so sad, but I also remember Rifat as the uh, greatest, uh, um, you know, owner of uh, all senses of humor, especially like brutal and um, uh, dark humor. Even people who do not know us would sometimes think that we have like an abusive relationship because of his jokes. I always enjoyed these jokes. Wherever he went to, he left a mark. Uh, there is a chair in our friend's house in Washington, D.C. called Rifa's chair. And remember Ali when uh, we had the pizza and he was making fun of the deep dish pizza and comparing it to the New York pizza and like the memories he lays and creates uh, stays uh, forever. Uh, Rifat also took me um, in his own home for three weeks when I did not have a home in Malaysia. So he, not just like a teacher and a friend, but a great human being. Um, uh, you know, we traveled Malaysia, we traveled United States together. Um, he always thought about his students uh, inside Gaza and outside Gaza too. Um, he sent me a number of uh, articles written by his students, and he was also so happy when he saw them being published. Uh, so his students were, you know, the center of his life, and that's why, you know, everyone is, is sad and remembering Rifat and telling their, you know, beautiful uh, memories with, with Rifat. I remember when we were in the United States, we spoke at different, multiple places, and Rifat also managed to uh, leave uh, a very positive impact on people he met. And we've seen this actually in Philadelphia. Uh, recently, there was a, a group of people who, who uh, organized a vigil in, in, in memory of, of Rifat, who met him in 2014. 
So people still remember him up until now. It's been uh, 10 years, uh, or nine years since we visited Philadelphia together. Um, he loved Gaza. He always, you know, told people that he's a son of Shuja'iyah, his uh, hometown in, in, in Gaza. And uh, I remember uh, we uh, walked over the uh, uh, Brooklyn Bridge, uh, Jihad, Rif'at, and I. And Rif'at wrote the name of his town on the bridge, Shuja'iyah, and he took a picture. He was always proud of his, of his town telling people everywhere that Shija'iyah, as if Shija'iyah is like New York, known by everyone, and he wanted Shija'iyah to be known by everyone. Um, I'm very sad, and you know, that uh, his life was cut short, but I am sure that Rifat will continue to live in the hearts of uh, thousands of people, hundreds of his students, but also millions of people around the world who are translating his poem today. Uh, because Rifat believed in, in the power of literature and, and writing, and he knew very well that uh, his writings uh, will live, uh, uh, you know, for a long time. And we've seen this, uh, you know, 260 languages is uh, a huge number. Maybe there is no other poem that was translated into 260 languages. Um, and this is a message to all of us that we should continue writing and defending uh, our cause as Rifat uh, wanted. Uh, Rifat uh, is the storyteller of Gaza, the father of storytelling in, in Gaza. And uh, Rifat is also an idea. He's immortal and ideas do not die. Uh, he will always be there. We will see him. We feel him watching over us and guiding us uh, every day in, in our life. Yusuf al Jamal, thank you so much. Um, I wanted to bring on uh, two of our other friends. Uh, first, I did want to say that the animation and, and voiceover uh, of that poem that, that we just showed right before you came on uh, was by uh, someone named Maya, and her handle on Twitter is Maya Amar2, um, and the song was sung by Nai. Borguti, and, and uh, thank you so much for, to, to David Alvarez for um, giving us that information. That's really valuable. And thank you, Maya, for making that. Um, so I wanted to bring on two two more guests. Um, you, uh, sorry, uh, Jihad Abu Salem, uh, Palestinian writer and former student of Rifat, and also Shaima Ziyara, a Palestinian from Gaza also a friend and former student, um, Shaima and Jihad, thank you so much for being here today. And you're both muted. Um, so uh, Shaima, uh, let's start with you. Talk talk about your your friendship uh, with Rifat and 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 how um, how you you came to be his student. Thank you, Nora. Um, I first met Jafat back in 2008, uh, so that's over 15 years ago. Um, I was only 14 years old back then, and he was my teacher in a youth program. Um, at that time, I was a young, malleable mind, and it was an honor to have been his student and to get the privilege to have my whole worldview shaped by him. Um, he introduced us to Malcolm X. He taught us about the Black Liberation Movement and helped us, helped us uh, draw comparisons with the Palestinian struggle for liberation. He taught us about Edward Said's 
uh, Orientalism, he encouraged us to think critically and to thoughtfully engage with literary characters we didn't necessarily agree with. Um, he taught us to see humanity in everyone. Um, Rifat is the reason I am who I am today. He didn't treat us like we were children. He never made us feel like he knows better than us. He treated us like great, capable minds, even when we were just, you know, foolish teenagers. Um, in class, he liked to inject his lessons with humor. He would tell great jokes, but also a lot of lame ones too. <laughs> he liked to tease his students. Um, it was almost like a bonding exercise for him. <laughs> he loved telling us about his um, mischievous shenanigans as a young kid and as a university student. And even at that time, he would tell us about the pranks he would pull on his friends as an adult. Um, he never lost his sense of humor, even in the darkest of times that we're seeing right now. Rifat grew and we grew under his wings. When I went to university, he was also my professor, and I looked forward to every single class of his. We were discussing Shakespeare, performing soliloquies, uh, writing poetry. We looked up to him like a big brother, like a friend that you know will always be there for you and will give you the best advice whenever you go for him for advice. In early November, when my brother Ahmad was severely injured in an Israeli bombing, if I was texting me almost every day whenever he gets a connection and he would ask about him. My brother and I, by the way, share the names of Rifat's eldest children, Shaima and Ahmad. Um, when my brother succumbed to his wounds, Rifat was devastated. He was the dynamite behind the freelance work of the youth in Gaza, Rifat said. And even in the darkest of times, when he was worried for his safety and for his family's safety, Rifat still made the time to check on me and my loved ones. In one of his interviews with um, Electronic Intifada uh, on a live stream, he was talking about how bleak and dark the situation is. And that's when he broke down crying, seeing that really broke my heart. This Rifat, who was always smiling, always quick with the witty, snarky remarks, he was overcome with grief. But by the end of that sentence, he could hear him regain his strength. And his voice getting stronger and becoming even more determined. Because that was Rifat. That's who he was. Like a phoenix, he would always rise up from the ashes. And today he still rises up through his legacy, through his words, his poems, his stories, and the minds that he has shaped. Just like in the poem of the Iraqi poet Ahmad Matar, Rifat is like a wheat stalk. Even when that weak stalk is falling to the ground, he is only falling to plant more seeds. We are those seeds. And we promise to stand tall and strong and carry his legacy forward. And as Susan Abunhala said, if I did not die, he multiplied. Thank you so much, Shaima. She had um, talk about your Friendship with Rafat, please. Thank you for having us. I met Rafat in 2004. I was 16 or 17 
years old then. I was in the 10th grade and I was chosen by my school in Deir el-Balah to attend a one-year English language program that was organized at Amadist, which is an American non, uh, educational nonprofit that had a, an office in Gaza City. Um, and for a year, I commuted with a number of Palestinian uh, students from Deir al-Balah, from Khan Yunus, from Rafah, from the north, from Gaza City, to Rimal, to Amidist's office, to attend this one-year program. And I remember the day walking into the classroom, there was this young teacher with his light beard, with his expo marker, welcoming us into the classroom. He had a gentle smile, um, a very polite, and loving and caring demeanor. For me personally, as someone who has been going to public school for a few years, that was a change of scenery and a change of culture. Um, and from day one, my colleagues and I realized how fortunate we were and how fortunate we are about to become, recognizing the impact Rifat will have on us. We did not fully comprehend what kind of role Rifat will play in our lives. I wasn't sure about him. He was, he did care about his students, and at the same time, he roasted them sometimes with his mean jokes <laughs> um, and with his dark humor. He also wasn't sure about me, but we, we became friends. And one day he honored me by allowing me to add him on MSN Messenger. And it was a big deal for me. I, I thought I was the coolest kid in that program to be able to chat, uh, you know, to have like an instant messages with Rifat uh, on, a, on a daily basis. We learned so much from him. He, when I wrote on Twitter the other day about how Rifat used the English language as a as a tool for liberation and defiance and as a, as a way to challenge Israel's siege on Gaza, that wasn't an exaggeration. You have to consider Gaza in 2004-2005. This is the, the time when I met Rifat and I got to know him. Isolation wasn't just an like an abstract thing. It was an actual feeling. 
that then would become worse and worse with, with the imposition of the blockade in 2007. So to have someone like Rifat who would tell you about the giants of literature, but also who would teach you about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and the difference between them and introduce you to the civil rights movement and to uh, you know Desmond Tutu and talk to you about issues and and matters that were happening and things that were important beyond the confines of Gaza's blockade. For us, that was a big deal. And he blew our minds many, many times with the kind of knowledge he would impart on us as his students. And Rifat saw, and I talked about this, and I will keep repeating it, he saw in English as a language um, and as something that you embrace as part of your daily life. He saw it as a tool of empowerment, especially for young Palestinian students who come from impoverished backgrounds in, in the Gaza Strip. He, you know, when, when people learn and speak English in many parts of the Arab world, they do so as a way of detaching themselves from the larger society. Uh, it's part of, you know, uh, a conscious or subconscious effort to become, you know, westernized in, in, in your own country, in your own society, to detach yourself from the people around you, to embrace Western brands, to uh, connect to Western popular culture. It has a classist dimension, this practice. But for Rifat, it was the opposite. He taught English and encouraged people to learn it so that they can break free from the constraints that Israel has imposed on us as victims of its blockade and occupation and de-development and impoverishment. English becomes a tool to connect with other struggles, to learn about them, to understand the, the, the heroes and the giants and the, and the ideas of these struggles and of these uh, uh, cases for liberation that are taking place around the world. So Rifat was free. He was free despite that he lived under occupation and despite all the pain that Israel has inflicted on him and his family. And Rifat freed us. We weren't, you know, we were young teenagers and, and you know, like uh, uh, people who are in, in their college age. Some followed Rifat, uh, Rifat's uh, path. Others, you know, sometimes weren't sure what to do with, with the knowledge that he gave them. But I can tell you, Rifat freed all of us. He freed all of us and he gave us a way to, uh, to connect with the, with, the, with the outside world, to learn more about ourselves and to understand our experience better. Because when you grow up in Gaza under blockade, you grow better, you grow, you know, sometimes it could take you to very dark places in terms of questioning why is this all pain inflicted on us? Is there something wrong with us? So Rifat comes and he tells you about 
the, the black struggle in America. He tells you about South Africa. He tells you about this issue and for that issue. And you, you begin to understand that, no, this is, this is about injustice. And this is about, again, the, 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 the universal connections that Yusuf talks about and, and Shaima also referred to. So, uh, you know, there's so much to say about Rifat Larif. And there will be plenty of time to honor his memory. And I think, you know, Rifat, again, like you just said, he's not someone who we should talk about in the past tense. Um, Rifat, however, entrusted me with a huge burden when I reached out to him to contribute to Light in Gaza, Writings Born of Fire, um, the book that you can see behind Ali. He, he told me and I, I would like to quote him, if I may. Um, he told me, you know, that he's really tired of how unheard Palestinians are. So he wrote, when I was approached to write for this book, the promise was that it will affect change and that policies, especially in the United States, will be improved. But honestly, Will they? Does a single Palestinian life matter? Does it? And then he wrote, It shall pass, I keep hoping. It shall pass, I keep saying. Sometimes I mean it, sometimes I don't. And as Gaza keeps gasping for life, we struggle for it to pass. We have no choice but to fight back and to tell her stories for Palestine. But I would like to end with this. Telling the story is a burden on the victim and a burden on the oppressed. But us telling our stories, as Rifat told us, isn't enough. There has to be people on the other side of the storytelling who listen and who take action. So listen to Rifat, heed his words, let it be a tale, and let it be a big fight for our liberation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jihad. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Um, before we go to uh, two more friends of Rafat, we wanted to um, talk about Rafat as first and foremost an educator. He loved the classroom. And we have a clip of him doing what he loved to do the most, teaching in a classroom in Gaza. The following clip is a part of a series of lectures that Rafat uh, had posted on his YouTube channel. Let's go to that. Personally, every time I teach a course, any course actually, I have one major goal in mind. I claim that I want to change my students' lives, hopefully to the better. Because I do believe, and this is, for many people, this is literature. What is literature going to change about me or in me or for me or around me? It doesn't put, put probably food on table. It doesn't, I don't know, make me rich. Although it does most of the time if you are a successful writer, especially if you are a novelist. So I say the first thing in, in, in my course is that poetry is about making us better human beings. Poetry is about improving the way we look at things, the way we deal with others, the way we deal with life, with difficulties, the way we deal with ourselves, the way we, we treat ourselves, the way we think about things. 
and probably I, I, I usually mention this how poetry is self-expression and you said this already before how poetry is self-expression there's something you feel that the urge to get it out whether you want to communicate or not whether you want people to react to your self-expression or not poetry literature is an act a very significant act of self-expression I don't want to exaggerate but could be as important as the need to eat sometimes I'm so grateful that we still have his voice. Um, we are now joined by Noor Nemer, a Palestinian translator, student of Rifat, and Ahmed Nihad, also a student of Rifat. Uh, Ahmed and Noor, thank you so much for being here. Um, Ahmed, uh, yeah, please go ahead. Um, <clears throat> hi, everyone. Thank you. Uh, I guess nothing, as Jihad said, nothing is enough to say about Dr. Rifat. Our friend Dr. Sarah Ali says, everyone who talks about Rifat cannot but in a way talk about himself. And yes, uh, Rifat shaped us all and made us the people we are now. one thing I don't know, um, I always ask myself where uh, Dr. Rifat uh, brings and um, where he uh, gets all this energy and strength to talk and write all the time about Palestine, about Gaza. Um, I have spent most of my days with him as friend and colleague, but actually as his mentee all the time. And um, I shared the details of his life, um, of his meals, of his jokes, of watching football together, or um, um, I don't know, bullying each other. And um, the more you get to know him, the more you respect this man. Um, But still, one thing, one question I've never been able to answer is how does Dr. Rifat find all this energy and hope uh, to to talk, to write, um, to put in so much effort and make such an impact. Uh, what I want to say to Omar, to Ahmed Yassin, to Shema, to Sara, to Amal, to Lina, to Omar, is that uh, they should know they have thousands and thousands of friends and siblings uh, in Gaza and around the world. I know nothing, nothing can replace Rifat, a giant who can do and excel in 20 tasks at the same time, better than 20 people and more can do one task. I keep saying this. I guess this is one thing that um, can, I don't know, sum up Dr. Rifat. I, one of the the first memories I have of him, because I, 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 I knew him since I was like 12, but one thing I, I one memory I always have is um, attending um, 
um, a seminar uh, for uh, his friend uh, Dr. Mahmoud Hassani in, in Gaza, and he was there to report the seminar. And um, I was um, sitting, uh, 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 and he, he was in front of me, and I could see his MacBook. I could see him um, and everything he, he did. And I couldn't but see how, in the same time, he's listening to what Dr. Mahmoud is saying, being active and like uh, um, participating in the discussions, and at the same time reporting um, what's happening in the in the seminar, and then at the same time tweeting uh, on his multiple uh, um, uh, uh, Twitter accounts, and at the same time following the news and uh, checking and editing text and texting um, other people and, um, I don't know, uh, making sure that everybody has a seat and making sure that everybody has their um, bottle of juice and at the same time, um, again, being attentive and, like, making uh, important points about what's going on. So, you know, nothing and no one can ever replace him or um, even all of us together. But I want... Uh, his, uh, uh, his sons and daughters and wife, and I want them all to know that we are here to try with whatever energy and life we have to continue his journey, his project in every possible way. And I want to say to us, to his friends, mentees, and students, that we have a lot to do. Dr. Rafat left us until his last moment with many ideas, projects, texts, stories, films, and poems to complete. We owe it to him and to his Palestine that he loves to his continue to continue his path. I have nothing to say but to testify um, that Dr. Rivat is one of those who suffered in many ways. The more you know him, the more you know Dr. Rifat and his life and the details of everything that uh, he went through, the more you know how much uh, he suffered and how much he had um, uh, in his plate to do family-wise, uh, community-wise, um, university-wise, everywhere. Um, and he reached stages of despair and worry, just like many of us, many times, but I'm always amazed at how he could always come back stronger each time, with more productivity, with more texts, with more poetry, with more um, helping uh, other people and reaching um, um, different uh, um, platforms to talk and write about Palestine. And I know the past is full of these contradictions between hopelessness and hope. And I know he went through those contradictions all the time. But as he taught us, as he still teaches us, that we have no we have nothing else, we have no other way but to continue to to talk about um Palestine, to write about uh, about Palestine, about Gaza in every possible way and just like him unapologetically and as strongly as, as possible. Uh, I saw Abu Amr put his whole heart 
into every story and article he wrote or edited with his mentees. He gave everything he had uh, to, to his students, to his mentees. I had the privilege to work beside him. I had the privilege at the first place to, um, uh, to be coached and taught uh, by him. And, and then I had the privilege, thanks to him, uh, to be his co-mentor and to be beside him. And I, was I, I, I always thought I did a good job uh, being a mentor, taking care of students and uh, helping them in every way possible. I, I, I always thought I cared, but then I look just next to me to, to him and the way he, he talks to students uh, and mentees. And then the conversations we'd have afterwards uh, in his car, because he'd never leave me um, uh, walk back uh, to my office alone, even though my office is like um, very close, but he'd always like take me with his car. And like, we talk about the day and about the students and he'd still shout and be angry or be enthusiastic or like he'd always talk about students and their works and like how amazed he is uh, with the brilliance of them or how disappointed he is that they lost this chance or this opportunity. And he'd always be like, I know um, this person or this um, mentee have, uh, has a lot of potential and I wish they could uh, live up to this potential and do everything uh, they can. He cared. And I remember always like having this argument with him, asking him, begging him to not care that much because like even me as a student and many of us, um, we sometimes or most of the time we were afraid a little bit of him because like, um, we know we do we make a double space or deal of space before the coma, or um, we'd forget something important, or uh, we would, um, for example, not know about Malcolm X or about any um, important uh, uh, activist, and he would like be really angry, not because he's angry, but more because he cared, more because he wanted us to be the best versions of ourselves. And as everybody um, said, as you had said, and like everybody, whenever we talk about uh, Dr. Rifat, he always believed in us more than we believed in uh, uh, in ourselves. And he always saw in us um, the potential uh, we had. Sometimes he implanted this, this potential. He poured all his heart into making us um, better people in a way or another. And this, uh, this this thing he said in, in the clip you just shared about him having uh, his aim as a teacher to change his students' lives. I don't remember a class he gave to me or I gave with him for the past six years without him starting with this. It was his true aim and I saw with my own eyes and myself as an example and in hundreds of other people I saw myself and thousands of others I learned about how he actually changed our lives um, for the better. Um, not only as people, not only the way we think, but also he, 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 he changed us um, in also in tangible ways. Um, lots of us had their first jobs or their first important jobs thanks to him. Um, because he always recommended us to, to people. He always helped us uh, get, the, 
those jobs and then he always helped us do them the best ways um the best ways we can um, <clears throat> um again as i said he gave us all his heart and i know that uh we owe it to him um to to carry this heart to carry all this that he taught us that he still teaches us um to continue his path to continue writing talking resisting um the occupation and uh with um i know again we have lots and lots to do and i know we are all determined to continue this path to continue all the unfinished projects all the unfinished uh texts and ideas um that he gave us um with all the energy and all the life uh we have all the energy and all the life he gives us forever uh the son of shijaia uh dr rafat rafiq larayir in our hearts voices words and resistance towards the free palestine thank you thank you so much ahmed thank you noor namer uh, hi everyone Thank you all for sharing your thoughts and memories of Dr. Rifat. And thank you, Ali and Noura, and everybody for arranging this beautiful, meaningful live stream. I had the privilege of being Dr. Rifat's student in five courses, one of which is a literary translation course. He taught me literary translation in the most beautiful way I can ask for, and he believed in me. He praised the first poem I've ever translated and encouraged me to translate more and more. And now I'm, I am a translator thanks to him. Dr. Rifat has always put our interests first. I remember working on a research paper last summer with my friends Alia and Dunya, and we used to frequently go to his office and ask him plenty of questions. And despite his busy schedule, he would pause his work to listen to our questions and he even rewarded us with bonus marks for doing so. And I guess we all know how rare and precious his bonus marks are. And um, in that same summer, my friends and I were planning to create a fan page to, to gather all the memes and the stickers we made or he made on him, on Shakespeare, on us, but we never did that page. I think when this war ends, we will create it as a small tribute to the joy and laughter he brought into our lives. Now, uh, many students speak of how he pushed us to grow and to step out of our comfort zones. But what astonished me was his gentleness in doing so. I mean, um, I remember in my early college days, I was shy and sensitive. So um, when I get distracted in the class, he would seamlessly incorporate my name into examples to bring me back into focus and to keep me interacting. It was a subtly impactful way of encouraging me to engage in the lecture. Dr. Rifat has always felt a responsibility for every person he knew. During the war, he posted in our uh, poetry course group to check on us. 
And he told us that he feels embarrassed for not knowing how to help us while he himself was facing the same hard situation. And he also offered phone balance to anyone in need. Uh, as most of Dr. Rifat's students, I have many, many memories with him, but the one I will always remember him through is not the most significant one, but the latest one. Just one week before his martyrdom, I sent him my translation of his poem named Drenched to ask him if the translation is good enough to be shared. He read it and he told me it's excellent. And I was so happy because Dr. Jafat is the kind of person who always encourages you, yes, but he doesn't praise your work that easily. And he told me to post it on Twitter so he can repost it. And it was the first time Dr. Rifat shares on his personal account something I translated. And because I've always looked up to him, it really meant so much to me. And finally, I want to say that um, meeting Dr. Rifat was a turning point in my life. But his assassination, as painful as it is, marks an even greater turning point. He was a blessing I'll forever cherish. And I believe his legacy will continue to inspire us all, always and forever. Thank you. Thank you so much, Noor. That was beautiful. Um, we're going to bring on some more friends, colleagues, and, and students of Rifat's in just a minute. Um, but some students were not able to join because, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, the unreliable connection in Gaza. Here's a clip that was sent to us by Iman Al-Hajj Ali. She's a journalist and translator based in Gaza. Israel has killed Dr. Rifat Gilariya, but he's still alive within us. Hi, everyone. This is Iman Al-Hajj Ali, a Gazan-based journalist, translator, and writer. Dr. Rifat was my professor at the Islamic University of Gaza. Yet he was more than that. He was like a father for everyone he dealt with. He was like a father for everyone he taught. I still remember our days at the university when he taught us many courses. Indeed, these courses are one of the most gorgeous courses that affected and shaped my personality. One of these courses is um, the world literature. I still remember how much he loved literature and how was that like uh, a part of his personality. And that greatly reflected upon us due to the great amount of information that he gave us. Indeed, I loved literature due to the way he explained it for us. Now, the English department has a great loss. Not only the English department, but all of Gaza, all of Palestine lost a great literature man. And we will never ever find such a great person like him. He taught me poetry. And now I'm writing great poems because of him. And I wish that he's still alive to show him these poems. He told us Shakespeare, and I still remember how much he loved that great play writer. To the extent that we never we were seeing him, we were talking between each other that Shakespeare has come. I still remember one of his lectures when he acted in front of us one of Shakespeare's um, Hamlet soliloquies, and he told us that this part is one of his favorite parts about 
how, how great the creation of the human is. And I want to say this for you, that how great you wear, you wear it. What great, what, what a piece of, what, I can't, I'm speechless, I'm speechless indeed. But I want to say that what a piece of work Dr. Rifat Lahiri is, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form, in moving, how expressed and admirable, in action, how like an angel. I still remember your sessions when you coached me about creative writing and how you, how you were telling us all the time to fight with our pens, to use our words, even if they are the, the smallest thing that we can do to defend the Palestinian cause, to reveal the harsh reality about the, the cruel actions that are taken against us because of Israel. And you are, not, you are now killed because you were not fearful. Because you are not fearful of defending the Palestinian cause. You were not fearful of revealing the barbaric actions committed by Israel against us. But you are not killed. You are still alive within us. And we will take your footsteps to defend the Palestinian cause. As you told us in your poem, if I must die, you must live to tell my story. And I promise you, we will live to tell your story, and we will write more and more. Israel now tries to call the intellectuals and educated people like Dr. Rifat al-Arir. They try, they try to rip the, the tree of knowledge from its foundation, but they will not let us down. We will resist. We, are, we will write more and more. We will write volumes. We will write books to defend the Palestinian codes and to, to, to reveal the harsh reality that we are suffering from because of the cruel um, so-called Israel and its brutal actions against us. Thank you. It's beautiful from Iman. Thank you so much, Iman. Um, we're now joined by Malik Zakut, writer and translator. Um, and also Khaled El-Hissi, journalist from Jabalia in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Malik, let's start with you. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, yes we can, thank you. All right, thank you for having me. Um, but before you go, uh, just a quick comment on what Ahmed said about how he thought he thought he did well uh, with the Mantis, and then he looked at Dr. Rifat, and then he no longer felt he did well compared to Dr. Rifat. Ahmed. I know this will make you feel good. Students used to call you the other Rifat. Literally, they used to call you the other Rifat. And I know this because I was the project coordinator at which uh, Dr. Rifat and Ahmed uh, were mentors. Thanks to Dr. Rifat, he believed in me when I myself did not believe in myself. Um, he called me one day and he was like, Malak, uh, there is this opportunity, Ahmed, I'm so sorry, I just want you to be happy. Uh, he was like, Malak, uh, there is this opportunity. Um, and I think you're a perfect fit. And I was like, what was it? And he said, it's a project or coordination um, position. And I was like, no way I'm going. And he was like, yes way you're going. And I was like, I'm not gonna be accepted. And he was like, um, no, you're gonna go uh, to the interview. And I think it's not your call. Uh, just do what you have to do. And then 
the next day I was accepted. I got my acceptance message. So yeah. Um without going longer I hey, can I, I comment the honor to of course uh, uh, we uh, I took uh, uh, one course with uh, Mr. Ahmed. We were calling him the young Rifat. We were always calling him the young oh. Rifat because he always used to be like Dr. Rifat. So yeah, Malik is right. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm going to have the honor of reading I am you by Dr. Rifat Larir. I hope my recitation does it justice. Two steps. One, two. Look in the mirror. The horror, the horror. The butt of your M16 on my cheekbone, the yellow pads it left, the bullet-shaped scar expanding like a swastika, snaking across my face, the heartache flowing out of my eyes, dripping out of my nostrils, piercing my ears, flooding the place like it did to you 70 years ago or so. I am just you. I'm your past haunting your present and your future. I strive like you did. I fight like you did. I resist like you resisted. And for a moment, I take your tenacity as a model. Were you not holding the barrel of the gun between my bleeding eyes? One, two. The very same gun, the very same bullet that had killed your mom and killed your dad is being used against me by you. Mark this bullet and mark in your gun. If you sniff it, it has your and my blood. It has my present and your past. It has my present. It has your future. That's why we are twins. Same life track, same weapon, same suffering, same facial expressions drawn on the face of the killer, same everything, except that in your case, the victim has evolved backwards into a victimizer. I tell you, I am you. Except that, I'm not the you of now. I do not hate you. I want to help you stop hating and killing me, I tell you. The noise of your machine gun renders you deaf. The smell of the powder beats that of my blood. The sparks disfigure my facial expressions. Would you stop shooting for a moment, would you? All you have to do is close your eyes. Seeing these days, lines are hearts. Close your eyes tightly, so that you can see in your mind's eye. Then look into the mirror. One, two, I am you. I'm your past, and killing me, you kill you. Thank you. Oh, Malek, that was extraordinary. Thank you so much. Uh, Khaled, what can you say? Uh, I have a lot of things to say, as Ahmed said. No one can sum up Dr. Rifat. No one can describe the feeling he lived or being, uh, what is the feeling of being a student for, with Dr. Rifat. But I'm very proud to be one of Dr. Rifat's students. I was and still a student. Dr. Rifat taught me. He taught me a lot of things. In classes, he did not only teach me poetry, drama, or Shakespeare courses, but he also taught me academic writing, creative writing, grammar, translation. Although he wasn't this 
the doctor for me for these things. In his classes, he also taught me history, culture, geography. Sometimes he taught me how to draw, even if my drawing was bad. He made me love the meme Al Parghuti poetry. And maybe most importantly, he made me love and know how to create memes. I never saw a doctor uses memes as a method of teaching. He loved memes. He loved to meme everything. He made us love them too. Sometimes we we were memeing him, and he would love that also. I I think all of his students know that. We also uh, used his uh, photos as stickers on WhatsApp, and he never he never uh, said anything about that. But he was also happy. He always encouraged us, encouraged me, encouraged other students to be creative, think outside the box, to to get out of our comfort zone. As Noor said, he would tell us to come to the class without researching about the next poem. This was in the the poetry course. I still remember this vividly. We would read the poem and discover it in the class. So he wanted us to be creative. He, he didn't want us to prepare and like to search about everything. Then like come like and say everything like you know. No, he wanted us to think to be creative. That's I think that is his goal. He knew it was difficult for him to do so, and he would be mad at us sometimes. He would be mad at us very, very many times because it was not easy for us to understand the whole poem without any previous research. But at the end, when someone answers, or someone like know the answer of this question, he was like he would be very, very happy, and he never gave up. Shaping our creativity, and to those who were creative, those students who were like thinking out outside the box, he would reward them with a bonus mark. And only Dr. Rifat's students know how much it is hard to get a bonus mark from him. I would never forget his facial expressions when he gave me one. This is one of my best memories. Like we, he was introducing us to Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, "Shall I compare thee to a summer's day?" And like, he 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 admired Shakespeare. He always was talking about Shakespeare 24 hours. And before this sonnet, we we took a sonnet for Sir uh, Thomas White, who is Solace to Hunt, I think it was called. Um, so he showed us in this sonnet about Thomas White. How, to, how he used the meter, this poet. How he used the meter, the iambic pentameter, to emphasize himself by stressing the pronoun I. And I apply the same thing when he uh, was uh, introducing us to Sonnet 18, how Shakespeare unstressed the V, the V there, and then he uh, stressed it at the end of the poem to indicate to the addressee that with my words, with my poetry. You will always be like strong, and you will live forever. And I raised my hand and I answered like this question. And Dr. Lefat was like, "Wow, wow, excellent! One bonus mark for you. One bonus mark." I still, I still remember this vividly. I still remember how he said it. And I wasn't, I wasn't happy because of the extra mark. I was happy because I could make him feel happy. I think. Students told me that it was impossible, like the doctor would praise you. 
this incident making Dr. Rifat proud and happy encouraged me and my friends to always come prepared to the class and try to think creatively and out of the box as he always wanted. I really miss him. I really do. But I don't believe he's dead. Maybe Israel killed, killed Dr. Rifat, but his inspiration is still within me and within all of his students. Dr. Rifat still teaches me a lot of things. He's teaching me how to always be brave, how to always not to be afraid of anything. He is teaching me that words are very powerful, are immortal. Dr. Rifat's voice reached and encouraged millions of people, although he was in Gaza. He's teaching me how to be kind, generous, and most importantly, how to offer help to others. Even in these times, I need help. To be a giver always, more than a taker. If well, the last thing I would like to say, the last remark, if Israel killed Rifat, by this action, it had created millions of Rifats. Each one of his friends is a Rifat. Each one of his students is a Rifat. And we will honor him by continuing his, mis his mission, by defending Palestine and its just case. Hello, Hissi. Thank you so much. That was gorgeous. And Malik, again, thank you so much for reading that poem. Um, before we go to some more friends and students, um, Rifat loves stories. And we wanted to show a clip of Rifat giving a TEDx talk in Shujaia, his neighborhood, um, and talking about how he was taught by his mother and grandmother about the power of storytelling. Let's go to that. Now, Edward Said warns of this. If we stop caring about stories, if we stop telling our stories, if we stop listening to our parents, we create space, we create vacuum for others to occupy this virtual space in our past, in our heart. Edward Said says, history is made by men and women. And I love the fact that he refers to this, the fact that this is something made by women and men, not leaders not politicians, not the elite, because the history, the oral history for us Palestinians belongs to you, to me, to our mom, to our dad, to our grandparents, to your parents and to your grandparents, because the, his the oral history should always belong to the people, should shape politics, not the other way around. History is made by men and women, just as it can also be unmade and unwritten in case we just leave it and keep silent. And this also takes me to an amazing story of a native Canadian. When the colonizers took over uh, North America and they wanted to divide the land among themselves, one of the eldest approached them. He asked, what are you doing? He said, we own the land. We are dividing the land among ourselves. He said, if this is your land, tell me your story. If this is indeed your, uh, your land, Tell me your stories. And of course, the answer is silence, because they had no stories, and they don't own the land. And it also takes me to Africa, and I love how talking about oral history and storytelling connects indigenous native people from all over the world 
Chenua Chebi teaches us something. This is a lesson for us all. If the lions do not have their own historian, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunters, will always glorify the occupier, will always glorify the colonizer rather than the colonized, the oppressed, the indigenous, the rightful uh, people of the land. And believe me, people out there are looking forward to our stories. They want our stories. They seek our stories. And this is the very amazing success story of Gaza Rights Back, which is a book. <laughs> Gaza Rights Back is a book of 23 stories written in English by young Palestinian uh, men and women between the age of 17 and 25. 13 of those, 13 of the 15 writers are females. 13. 13 of the 15 writers are women, are young women. And this again takes me back to the fact that my mom made me. My mom made me the man I am because of her stories. And my grandmother made me love my, my country, my homeland. I encourage everyone um, who's listening or, or watching right now to, to go over to Rafat's uh, YouTube channel and, and watch uh, that as well as some of his lectures. I mean, the, the TED Talk uh, is extraordinary, and um, I learn something new every time I watch it, which in the last few days has been many times. Um, we are going to go to one more clip uh, from Zainab Bashir from Gaza. She's a translator, storyteller, and a student of Rifat. Let's go to that clip. Hi, everyone. I'm Zainab. I'm a student of Dr. Rifat al-Arabiyah. May he rest in peace. One thing I learned from Dr. Rifat, may he rest in peace, is that we should never stop writing. Our words matter. Our voices matter. There is never uh, wrong, right and wrong in writing and in translating. He always made us brave. He made us believe in ourselves, believe in our translations, believe in our writings. He told us to never stop translating and writing, which because it's powerful, we need it. We have to publish it. We have to share it. We have to show the world our voices and our words. Um, that made us brave, that made us believe more, that our voices matter, believe, made us believe more in our translations, in our words. And he did it, encouraged us, every one of us, whenever we go and ask him to look at our translations and our writings, he would always encourage us to publish them. He would always show us, show us enthusiasm and gets excited and gets, he gets so proud of us. And uh, one thing I uh, would never forget that happened with him was, was last semester when we were studying Shakespeare course. Uh, we were studying uh, Hamlet's play, and he was explaining uh, the last line of Hamlet when Hamlet dies. He says, the rest is silence. And Dr. Rifat wrote that on the board, and he wrote, uh, tells my story, because uh, Hamlet told to husband to, told, to tell his story, sorry, so Dr. Rifat told us the best thing that someone can get up here is that it's someone who tells a story and raises his voice. And that stuck in my mind. And when I heard the news of his assassination, I remembered that thing he said. And 
I said that we should all promise ourselves to amplify his voice and to tell his story and the rest must not be silenced, the rest should not be silenced, like Hamlet said. May he rest in power, we will all be his voice, and I hope we never fail him. Zainab Bashir from Gaza um, will uh, also play a clip from Yunus Al-Halaq, a former student of Rifat and also a writer in Gaza. Let's go to that. Hello, this is Yunus Al-Halaq from Gaza Strip, and I'm also one of uh, the students of the English Department at the Islamic University of Gaza. Uh, Dr. Rifat Al-Arair taught us some courses and Dr. Rifat, when he was teaching us, he wasn't only teaching us the course and he leave the class. No, 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 but Dr. Rifat was like a friend. He was pushing us to do something creative, to do something like to, to speak, to do, to write back and to, and to get your voice out. This is what he wanted us to do always, okay? So this is why, uh, why we believe as his students that he was the, the, the best doctor, the perfect doctor that we could ever uh, have. So all of his words, all of his advices, and script in our hearts before our uh, minds. Okay, the last time I contacted with him, he was pushing me to write in the world, and this is why I I published my uh, my story, my article on the electronic father. and he was always pushing us that he was always telling us that you have something to do, you have something to write, you have something uh, uh, to speak about. Because you live in Gaza, and Gaza has a lot of stories uh, that are hidden, okay? And the world Welcome back. And uh, that was a tribute to Professor Rafat, uh, who was killed uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces in the siege on Gaza. And that was, of course, Electronic Intifada, uh, Day 66. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. If you'd like to... Uh, have access to this program, I just go to our website, and that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African journal. We'll close out with Tad Dabaron and Fats Navarro. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Again, ladies and gentlemen, with our theme, Devil with Symphony Sid, done by the Tad Dameron Group, we bring you and bring our microphones right down here to the Royal Roots, Metropolitan's Opera House, here at 1580 Broadway, between 47th and 48th Street, where the lights are low, the music with that real knocked-out groove, and the people wonderful. Right now, I'd like to introduce to you the gentleman of the Tad Dameron organization. Tad Dameron, wonderful musician, one of the greatest in small group jazz. Here he is. Let's give him a great big hand. Tad Dameron, ladies and gentlemen... And not to waste not to waste too much time, let's bring to you a few of the other gentlemen. On on trumpet, one of the greats of all time, Fat Navarro. Fat Navarro, ladies and gentlemen. And on tenor, on tenor, a wonderful guy, Alan Eager. Alan Eager, ladies and gentlemen. And then of course, it's uh, Kenny Russell on bass and Kenny Clark on drums. Let's give them all a great big hand. And here's one of the great things that you always ask for when you call in the studio at Circle Six, two five hundred, the all night all frantic show, the squirrel. Thank you.
ladies and gentlemen, and that was a squirrel. Well, here's one you always ask for. It was arranged originally by the great Tad Dameron, one that Dizzy made, and I hope you enjoy it. Good bait.
Let's bring back the great Tad Dameron organization, ladies and gentlemen. Tad Dameron, the wonderful thing, one you ask for very often, thing called anthropology. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's bring Pancho back again. Pancho Kenny Hager to do Kitchenette Across the Hall. A real novelty thing, one I hope you really enjoy. Pancho, it's all yours. 
met her in a grocery store. She was buying groceries galore. To my surprise, I found she lived next door in the kitchen at across the hall. Next morning, many thanks to say. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.